Grace and peace to you from God through Jesus, friends. Amen. The most famous death on uh, November 22nd, 1963. Some of you remember this. JFK. Just under an hour earlier, though, there was another death, which would have made some headlines if it weren't for the fact that a, a sitting American president had been assassinated the same day. C.S. Lewis, a, a British writer, collapsed and died after suffering through end-stage kidney failure at his home in London uh, for some months. Lewis was a Christian writer. He's now best known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia, sort of a, a Christian young adult children's allegorical book series. But Lewis also wrote nonfiction from a Christian perspective. Uh, his book, A Grief Observed, offered his perspective on how Christians deal with grief. He wrote another book, The Problem of Pain, which addressed the problem posed by the existence of pain and suffering in a world where there is an all-powerful, all-good God. The genre in which Lewis wrote, addressing things like grief and pain and the existence of God, is called apologetics. Not apologetics in the sense of apologizing, saying sorry for something, but apologetics means, it's a technical term that means a defense of an idea against objections. If you're someone who follows the Oscars, and you can present a case for your favorite nominees, you are an apologist for that nominee, as you positively present its merits and you negatively critique the competition. Lewis was not a disinterested apologist. When he wrote A Grief Observed and dealt with the, the, the spiritual sickness, the spiritual illness that grief can cause, he wrote that after his wife died of cancer. When Lewis wrote about the problem of pain and suffering in this world, he wrote that as a man who served in the trenches of World War I, who had a, a friendly fire shell drop on top of him and his unit. Lewis experienced grief firsthand. Lewis experienced pain firsthand. He wrote about these things as someone who had experienced them firsthand. Lewis' most famous apologetic argument, though, is one about who Jesus was. See, when Lewis wrote, there were many people who would have agreed that Jesus was a, a great teacher, but they sort of backed away from regarding him as God in the flesh, born into our world 2,000 years ago. And Lewis, for a time, was in that camp. Again, he wasn't disinterested in this argument. As a teenager and through his 20s, Lewis, who had been baptized into the Church of England, was an atheist. He served in World War I, then he came back and continued his studies and became a professor at Oxford, and he taught as a professor on literature and on classic history. And now this was important, because it meant that professionally Lewis was reading ancient writings, studying them, engaging with them, both ancient fiction and ancient nonfiction. And as he engaged with the Bible, because some of his colleagues were Christians and challenged some of his beliefs. When Lewis decided to go to the primary text firsthand and engage with the Bible himself, he found that he was not reading something which sounded like the ancient fiction that he studied, especially as Lewis read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Lewis saw that he was not reading legend and myth, something that sounded like the ancient fiction which he professionally studied, he was reading something that sounded like biography, 
like the ancient histories and biographies that he studied. The Gospels were biographies, this Oxford professor realized. They were not meant to be read as legends. This led Lewis first to conversion to Christianity and then second to the expressing the apologetic argument about who Jesus was that still carries his name. Again, an argument that he didn't make in a disinterested kind of way, but as someone who wrestled with this. Lewis argued in what's still called the Lewis Trilemma. You cannot read the Gospels and say, this man Jesus was simply a good human teacher. No. The things this man Jesus claimed about himself rule that out. Our Gospel text today, our sermon text, is an example Lewis might have used. The things Jesus said to his disciples here in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you have seen me, you have seen God the Father. A good human teacher doesn't talk this way. Megalomaniacs talk this way. You can read Jesus' words, Lewis argued, and you can come to one of three conclusions. You can go away that you are reading the words of a, a madman. Right? You can read the things that Jesus says and go away with the thought that he needed psychological care. You could conclude that this Jesus was a liar, right? a fraud, a huckster, a con man, just like the thousands of other cult leaders who have sprung out throughout history. Or you can conclude that he was telling the truth. That this indeed was the Son of God, dwelling among our human race as a man, sent to die for your forgiveness. Lewis, as he expressed this argument, he summed up uh, the whole thing with three words, all beginning with L, to make this nice and catchy and memorable. Lewis said that Christ was either a lunatic, or a liar, or the Lord. Nothing else works. Why can't we just call him a good and noble teacher? Because he claimed to be the only way to heaven. If he was lying about that, he's no good teacher. Likewise, if he was insane, then Lewis said we should pay as much attention to this man as we should to someone who thinks that they're a fried egg. Jesus did not leave us room to patronizingly regard him as merely a good teacher. We're driven to either lunatic, liar, or Lord. The disciples were perhaps wrestling with that same thought. This gospel reading takes place on Holy Thursday evening. The night before Jesus' death, the evening when he instituted communion, as he and his disciples ate the Passover meal. Judas has just left the room to gather the soldiers who will arrest Jesus. And Jesus is aware of this. The other disciples think that Judas, their treasurer, has just left to purchase some more supplies for the meal. After Judas left, Jesus told the other disciples, John 13, verse 31, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. I will be with you only a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is talking here about his impending death. He's talking about his death, which is the moment when he will be glorified and God will be glorified. God will glorify, God will honor his son Jesus for this tremendous sacrifice. He will raise him, first to life and then to his right hand. And Jesus will glorify, will honor his father in this moment by trusting his father, by obeying his plan, by giving God that glory. But this was something only Jesus could do. No one else was able to carry out the mission for which he came into the world. The disciples, he says, could not go where he was going. They could not go to the cross. But Peter, always Peter, just before our text, he objects. I'll never leave you, Jesus. I'll go wherever you're going. And Jesus pointedly 
with sorrow, tells Peter, before the rooster crows its sun up, Peter, you'll swear three times that you don't know me. John's Gospel moves directly from that prediction into these words we're reading this morning, John 14. None of the disciples speak in reply to Jesus' prediction about Peter's betrayal. They're shocked. Peter will betray you, Jesus? Yeah, Peter is a hothead sometimes. Yeah, he speaks off the cuff. Yeah, he doesn't watch his tongue often. But but Peter will betray you, Jesus? The disciples' hearts hurt. And that's where Jesus begins this discourse we're reading. Don't let your hearts be troubled, he says. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is, again, an instance where Jesus' very words force us to consider whether he's a nut, a con man, or a savior. He wants the disciples to regard him the same way they regard God. Believe in God and believe in me. If this man is a lunatic, they should head out the door and find another Passover party. Same thing if he's a liar. They should not hang out with the kind of person saying these kind of things. If I would ever say something such as this from my pulpit, get out that door and get in your car. Unless it's true. Jesus' prediction of Peter's denials would come true over the next 12 hours. In fact, everything Jesus had told them would happen comes true. In under 24 hours, Jesus will be dead. Only a few of them will be brave enough to come out and see him on his cross, and that should have been the end of things. There was no reason for them to stick around after that. Maybe he was a liar, they could say. Maybe he was a lunatic. Either way, now he's dead. Except they don't leave. The two men who speak in our reading today, Philip and Thomas, both die decades later with Jesus' name on their lips. Thomas, we heard about a few weeks ago. He's killed while sharing Jesus' message in India. Uh, for Philip, the history is a little less clear, but he died also, either crucified or beheaded, sharing the gospel in Greece. If they believed that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic, they would not have spent the last years of their lives on difficult, perilous missions to faraway lands with his message. But these men became convinced that Jesus was Lord. That his message was true and that sharing it was worth Hunger on the long roads and sleeping outdoors. It was worth peril on the seas and peril in the cities. It was worth dying for. The liar option starts to fall apart here. If they were liars, both Jesus and his disciples, just in this whole thing for the clout, then dying really makes it pointless. So maybe they were all lunatics, right? Jesus was a lunatic, and he managed to find 12 other lunatics who would all go on to die after him. The odds seem fairly low there. And this idea doesn't match the facts of the matter. The disciples were afraid when Jesus was arrested. They, they ran and hid. Peter denied him, just as Jesus predicted. Those aren't the actions of lunatics, those are the actions of scared, rational people. When they heard that his body was missing, they locked themselves in a room to plot out how they were going to escape Jerusalem before they, the, the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities, came for them and put them up on crosses next. Right? These were not the actions of lunatics. These were rational decisions. Everything that they did seemed rational until this man that they knew had been dead showed up in a locked room with them and ate their fish as they poked at the holes in his hands. Jesus says at the end of this text, Believe 
based on the evidence I've given you, that I am who I claim to be. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. When he says that, he's simply rephrasing the words with which he began this discourse before Philip and Thomas interrupted him. Don't let your hearts be troubled, he said. You believe in God, believe also in me. These two commands are two sides of the same coin. To believe in Jesus, what we call having faith, is to have an untroubled heart. What kinds of things trouble our hearts? Peter and the disciples were troubled because Jesus told them that they would abandon him. It troubled them to be told that they were sinful, weak, insufficiently zealous, imperfectly committed. The same thing troubles us also. We're troubled when we're reminded that our commitment to loving God and loving our neighbor is never what it ought to be. Our hearts can also be troubled by our own efforts, by our failures, and by our efforts. The early Christian church, as we read in the first reading, wrestled with the role of the Old Testament ceremonial law in their lives. What did God want from them? To the heart that is troubled, either by our own failures or our own efforts, Jesus says, believe in God and believe in me. Jesus is the answer to our failure, where we daily fail to love our neighbor as we should, where we fail to sacrifice to look after their interests rather than our own, Jesus gave his life on behalf of every human who has ever and will ever live. And Jesus is the answer to our effort, to our troubled hearts that always want to know what God wants, what God needs from me. We rejoice to hear Peter, the forgiven denier, tell us in our second reading, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There's the effort God was looking for carried out by Jesus. We have been brought to God through Jesus' suffering. The sacraments which Jesus instituted answer your troubled heart's worries over your failures and over your efforts. In baptism, your failures are answered. The water of the flood symbolized baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A clear conscience, despite your failures, is promised to you by God in this water. In communion, the supper, your troubled heart's fears about your own efforts are also answered. Do you really feel like you need to do something to take some effort, Jesus says? Then, then do this. Take this and eat it. Take this and drink it. There's your effort. And stop worrying. Forgiveness is yours. So we hear from our second reading. Peter writes, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Don't, don't be troubled by the things which trouble the people of this world. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Not lunatic, not liar, Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What reason is that? Jesus. His promise of forgiveness and of life handed over tangibly to you. Amen.